So, our new Something Who co-host is an AI bot. Well, it's all the rage. Are you trying to get rid of us? After we brought you nothing but fame and success. Look, just think of it as a nice bit of competitive tension. Do people ever hit you? Well, no more than twice a day. So, what can it do? Well, these AI bots are fairly simple. It can come up with an opinion when fed with information, but it can't explain why. Hello, bot. Good evening. How may I assist? Well, what did you make of the Sunmakers and Oxygen? Opinions are available for personal use only at competitive prices. Hmm. Look, I'm from Yorkshire, and you three are free. I tell you what, bot, I wish I could say it's been nice knowing you, but you're fired. Simon, what did you make of the stories? Well, Richard... Any unlicensed opinion will be automatically expelled to protect market value. There's no escape, Richard. You'll have to get your wallet out. Hang on. Isn't that an opinion? Yes, I suppose it is. Because it said... expelled? What's that? Oh, no! It's removing us from the podcast. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make something who. Hello, I'm Richard, and after a run of special episodes, we're back with Something Who podcast episode 76, where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories that are capitalist allegories. First, we'll look at fourth Doctor story, The Sunmakers, from season 15, and after that, we'll examine Twelfth Doctor Outing Oxygen from Series 10. And with me to decide whether these stories generate a profit from the investment of viewing or a just plain taxing, we're back <laughs> to our original lineup. Plum, you're on fire. <laughs> Let's start with writer, raconteur, and missing episodes expert Paul. Hi, Paul. Hello. Good evening. I understand you're fresh from tre- treading the boards. Well,. I've just been training the boards, and that, that's why I'm not very fresh. I'm absolutely exhausted. I've been given my Valmont in Dangerous Liaisons at the Whitstable Playhouse. It's such a long play. We didn't realise till we finally put Acts 1 and 2 together um, quite late in the day that it's about three hours long, which is very taxing on the audience and the performers. But um, can you imagine them to watch me for three hours? Hmm. Good God. Did, did, did John Malkovich <laughs> take three hours? Um... um I don't think. <laughs> I don't know what to say about. What to they, say they, 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 they may not have. They may not have taken the original text. Is that what you're saying? I think it probably took him weeks and weeks to film that, and they edited it down. It's just a hunch <laughs> up about the Stephen Frears working methods. Okay. But, mm. <laughs> anyway, next up, it's science and astronomy writer Giles. Hello. Hi there. And you've recently been hobnobbing with the greats in Oxford. Uh, yes, yeah, I did a talk where I was lucky enough to be introduced by the Astronomer Royal, no less. Um, yes, and we sat down and had a chat about an 18th century star atlas, and uh, so that was fun. Mm. And then I had a, um, also had a little mini reunion of um, Only Connect people, TV quiz people. Mm. It's always hard, you go into a room full of people you vaguely know off the telly, and you go, oh, do I, oh, uh, oh, no, no, I don't actually know you. <laughs> <can't> just... <laughs> they, they, you all just look vaguely familiar, but um, because of that, but but yes, so so um, my old teammate John Dorney and a few other familiar faces. So hmm. yes, excellent. And back with us again, it's the voice of reason from something. Who it's Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for inviting me back, Richard, and nice to be with you again, guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we—if nothing else—we definitely need that voice of reason tonight. <laughs> yeah, like, <clears throat> I don't know what I'm saying. I'm burbling. <laughs> you need some oxygen, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Topical, topical gag. Uh, okay. I guess 
before we do run out of, of steam or juice or whatever it is that we're, we're short of, we should probably get into the first of our stories, which is The Sunmakers, which was written by Robert Holmes and directed by Pennant Roberts. Mm-hmm. And I will start the proceedings by saying, unusually for me, I don't remember this story from its original run. So so I'm not going to say to you, I haven't seen this since its original broadcast, because I didn't see it on its original broadcast either. <laughs> I did I did watch it on UK Gold in the 90s. So that, I think, is the only other time I've seen it. I remember remembering this. I I think I remember seeing it in 1977? Right. Yeah, eight seven, now. I But now I've forgotten what it was that I used to remember remembering. I, I think I might remember, the, might be the collector or something, I don't know. It might be one of those ones, uh, you might forgive a child for not remembering me, because there aren't any, mm. there are no monsters, you know, or particularly vivid imagery. Mm. This is why I'm thinking it might have been the collector, uh, spoilers, going down his plug hole at the end, but um, mm. I'm not sure anymore. It's too long ago. I do remember getting the book in the 80s, it was one of those late Terence Dixies. Oh yeah. And I was very excited by it, because he... Uh, you put a bit more effort into it. I, I managed to catch this when it was first broadcast. Hmm. And I made the schoolboy error with my research of watching Oxygen first. <laughs> so ah. the sum makers looked a bit cheapo by comparison. And, and so it must have done at the time. It, it came out at the same time, I think, as Star Wars was released. So right. all those really crummy laser gun effects, you see, look extra terrible, unfortunately. So everyone who got along to see Star Wars... And like Paul, I was I, I was in that cycle where I wanted a, a new monster every week. I wanted Unit to come back. Mm. And the wonderful thing about Tom Baker was you never knew where he was going to pop up in his TARDIS. So to pop up in what looked like one of the leisure centres I used to go to all the time <laughs> for my swimming lessons and things was to a kid's eyes, it was a bit of a crushing disappointment. But once you grow up and become a taxpayer, you realise the cleverness and the creativeness of Robert Holmes with his story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very true. Charles? Uh, yeah, I don't... It was it was just pre-Christmas 77, by the way. Right. I just mm. checked the dates mm. um, to remind myself. The whole I don't thing? It didn't, it didn't cut across the... Uh, the Not quite. November 26th and November 17th of December. Right. So, yeah, I don't remember seeing this at the time, and I've definitely got memories that I was watching mm. most of season 15, I think, as it went out. I've got bit, bits of... Bits of Fendal, bits of certainly most of the Leela stuff is in there somewhere, a bit a bit mixed up. And then I honestly can't remember whether whether I had to wait till it came out on VHS, whether whether I saw it on a friend's hooky copy or something later, probably one of the UK Gold tapings or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen it since, and I'll certainly be revisiting it sooner than. Yeah, I found there was a lot in it to enjoy and I thought okay this is a bit of a neglected gem as one would expect from the pen of Robert Holmes but mm-hmm. I think it, its attractions are less obvious in comparison with mm. with the atmospherics of, of some of the stuff around it mm. like Fendal and Fang Rock and and so on and so forth well, it's a real mixed mixed bag season 15 isn't it it's not exactly mm, a game yeah. of two halves because they're all mixed up it's almost yeah. like gothic one week mm. Graham Williamsy cheap but ambitious science fiction next week, and, mm. it, and it goes it's up and down, up and down before it finally settles on the latter. Mm. It's interesting what Simon yeah, said about it looking... The, this is the beginning of the outrun, really, isn't it? Because it's mm. then this and then... I was thinking about the Star Wars thing, mm. and uh, some of what I would say about this is similar to what I said about the Invisible Enemy many years back, except, of course, that's full of monsters and things, but it does have mm. laser battles and corridors, and you think, oh, yes, your initial reaction is, of course, this is 77, they must be riffing on Star Wars, but it hadn't mm. come out here. So they weren't. It's just a strange coincidence that so much robot, you know, cute mm. robots, laser battles in corridors and is making its way into Doctor Who that year. Mm. And yet it's just a coincidence, I think, I'm right in saying. I mean, I mean it is curious, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's, there's no great history for laser battles in corridors in Doctor Who. Mm. I, I, I mean, I, that was one of the things I was struck with in, in the... Some makers. I mean, obviously, there's there's plenty of op, uh, of examples of unit soldiers firing guns at stuff and not really having much of an impact. But the, you know, the ability of the of the doctor to have a 
a companion that sort of knocks things out or or down or even kills them is mm. pretty unusual uh, for the show up to this point. And yet, for the next sort of two or three years, it just becomes de rigueur, doesn't it? And I can't really go on to say what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> who's the script editor on this? Is it Anthony Reid by now? Because it must be. Yeah, it must be. Yes, and Bob Holmes. Apparently, now, neither of them credited. I get terribly. Oh right, okay. I get terribly confused because this is one of those seasons where they showed a lot of the stories out of all out of production order, right? Mm. A bit. Mm. This in season nineteen is where I get terribly confused, and we and I bring it up every time we do one of these stories, and you put me right, and I forget, and we, the cycle continues. <laughs> Tell we'd, Dexter we've come full circle. We'd be but disappointed we, if he didn't do it. I guess, thank so. you. I thought you would be. But I mean, he's um, he's being very, you know, he's he seems to be doing somebody is doing script editor duties here because Bob not only is keeping up the character of Leela, giving yeah. her th- Leelery things to do as mm. as he would have been when she was brought in, but now he's having to find K nine things for K nine to do. Yeah, yeah. Whether it be jokes or action bits for him, and, and you know, sometimes you've got Leela throwing knives into people's shoulders and K nine firing his laser blasts, and all this he's managed to work all this into a story which is ostensibly a a comedy comic satire mm. so he's doing he's been very professional and efficient with it all and mm. finding finding stuff for everybody mm. alongside what he wants to talk about and the other thing the other thing about this story is how interest i think how interesting that bob is back to um i would say uh, the essential bob bob writing about the sort of things that bob is interested in yeah. in a bobbish sort of mm. way after three years of I reckon just doing what Hinchcliffe wanted him to yeah. do, and he was very good mm. at it. But as soon as Hinchcliffe's gone, he's back to this is like Carnival of Monsters. Or it's something, it, isn't I, it? I, I thought that exactly that. I thought this is very Carnival of Monsters ish, and not very much like Pyramids of Mars or Ark in yep. Space. So, and of course, most or of the talents. things that we think of as him that went out during the Hinchcliffe years were him rewriting other people. So, mm. and we've discussed this before. Really, it's not really until Towns of Wing Giant, right, the, as he's on the way out the door, that he writes something that's him from start from soup to nuts so yeah fascinating hmm. but i say that every time so but it's not you know <laughs> he hasn't just eased himself back into um he hasn't written a sort of mid semi bobbish thing like terror of the autons he's gone straight back to uh and and why why is it just because he wanted to write a comedy or is it because as we're always told graham williams came in being told to lighten the program up hmm. so is that why he's written this story as he thought oh, okay and then I'm thinking, déjà vu, or <laughs> déjà yet to come, because exactly the same thing will happen to him with Impos- uh, Mysterious Planet in 1986. Yeah. A-, a commissioning, you know, the high ups of the BBC tell the the producer, mm. cut down the violence. You've got to bring in more comedy. And um, on that occasion, Bob does not rise to the challenge in quite such a celebrated fashion, does he? Mm. I was reminded yeah. of Mysterious Planet. Right at the very beginning, where the gatherer is going on... Well, it's not the beginning, it's early on. Going on about his mahogany table. Mm-hmm. Maho- his mahogany table. <laughs> and it reminds... Do you remember the, there's loads of jokes in Mysterious Planet like that? Mm. With mm. mispronunciations of Earth words from a, a distant, geographically and temporally distant past that the viewer understands. Mm. Mm. And as, as Simon was saying earlier, the legend of this is that whereas when faced with 95% tax, George Harrison wrote a song, <laughs> Robert Holmes wrote a Doctor Who story. Mm. Yeah. I mean, presumably he wasn't paying 95%. No, no, not not in the 70s. No, it was I mean, a bit less he, by then. He wasn't earning as much as George Harrison and also it was the 70s, but it was enough to annoy him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Come on, who's right. done some research? What was, the, was Bob's tax rate? All I, can, all I can say is that my dad used to moan about it in the 70s, mm. about the amount of tax he had to pay, particularly you know, if he, got, if he had a, a good year and got his sales bonuses in, then he'd be clobbered by the tax man. I remember that aspect mm. of it. And, you know, and to be fair, I feel much the same these days. Well, you hire earners. Well, <laughs> I tell you what, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. Not, not, not after you... I mean, yeah. <laughs> What, um, what I mean, you you brought the whole tax thing up, Simon. How how, how, how do you feel about this story? Ah, oh, it's a it's a. I mean, I was looking for again, being a kid when I saw this, I was looking for monster of the week. But the the collector and the gatherer were the main characters, weren't they? Hmm. 
the collector disappears into a disappointing ball of green slime. But um, Gavra, is it Hayde, Hayde or Hayde? Gavra Hayde. Yeah. He was a he was a fantastic character. He got He's chopped off the roof ultimately. Mm. Which I thought you hear about Mary Whitehouse in the seventies tutting over all the violence in Doctor. Yeah, surprisingly, um, yes, surprisingly brutal ending, really. Mm. Treated for laughs, sort of. Yeah. The collector, I again watching this as a kid, I recognised his voice straight away. He he used <laughs> to host a show called Words and Pictures. He did. Ah. Do you do? Do you do remember that? Vaguely. Words and pictures. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, was it was it was it a schools program or was it? It's a schools program, yeah, yeah, with a nice a nice theme tune as well. Hmm. So that was a bit bit strange seeing when you you know realizing that someone you you were very familiar with one show could also pop up in another one as a as a villain. Yeah. But yeah. there were lots of interchangeable people back back then, and, and there still are now. Yeah, so Henry Wolf mostly famous for two things: words and pictures, the children's program, and working with Harold Pinter. But, you know, that's just one of those delightful thing. <laughs> Curious, things. Curious yes. things. They went to school together in Hackney. Oh, so they go right. back a long oh, way. Of course, they were, old, they were mates, weren't they? Not just work workmates. Yes, I remember. They were geezers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I said that the other guy, the, the gatherer, I, I, I thought he was one of those classic 1970s officials from the planet Rada. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he's a very sort of fruity accent, uh, and, and and I thought very like one of the functionaries in in Carnival, I suppose, or no, not the functionaries, but the other guys, the the the, high, the higher ranking ones. The patrician, yes, yeah. Did anyone else get a Aztec vibe from um, the Gavra's headgear? Oh right, the, I was yeah, just thinking that, the connection with the you know the Sunmakers. I just well, and with the Sun I, emblem they have, yeah. Hmm. Maybe that ah, wasn't that's the sort of thing that designers pick up on, isn't it? If they mm. BBC designers trained in the fine arts and the classics gets a Doctor Who script and it's all science fiction gobbledygook, they just look for something, anything they can cling on to to bring it back to something real and or a bit classy. Mm. I, who was? Does anyone know the actor Gatherer Hayd? It was oh lord. He looks like he the didn't... sort of person who. Would have riffed yeah. off, enjoyed working with Tom Baker and vice versa, and they would have probably yeah. egged each other on. That's the sort of thing that's happening a lot in this era, was it not? Richard Leach. Richard Leach. You did see him in. He, he crops up in various various sort of period. Hmm. Like he's oh. in the Yangtze, Yangtze incidents and things like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, um, the eyebrows are fairly unmistakable. Mm. Yes, and uh, he's in a few. Three episodes of The Avengers, apparently. Oh, right. Well, there you go. But yeah, he's one of those people that you kind of expect to seeing those yeah. I, I couldn't name any particular thing but talking of Tom he's, he's he's almost at sort of season 17 levels in this well, I was surprised and right from the off with the TARDIS scene it is there isn't it when he's leaping about yes I was yeah. thinking this god that didn't take him long is it was it just Hinchcliffe holding him in <laughs> yeah I guess check? so yeah. as soon as he's <laughs> out the door we he's off the leash yeah very strange well, this, but yeah, it's back and forth isn't it hmm I'd, I'd read about I'd read about this, but not sort of picked up on it on screen. And there's something up between Tom Baker and Louise Jameson, isn't there? In those scenes you just mentioned, Paul, they're not oh, well, they're was... not gelling together really. I was. Could you could you see it? Because we've heard about this so much. Mm. I've, I'm, I know the one thing I always sticks in my mind is the idea that he couldn't look at her, unless I'm getting confused with the scenes where he can't look at Lala Ward. But I know I know he, he literally played whole scenes in season eighteen where he. Right, they don't look at each other. But I, mm. am I misremembering? Did they someone say that about Louise Jameson? That he would just not look at other actors, just play everything off to one side for. I or am, yeah. am I it getting too anecdotes well. confused? But you saw, mm. I had that in my head, and I was looking, and I couldn't see it. And also, I just I couldn't see any tension. I couldn't see anything. And they, more to the point, they're working so well together. Mm. Some of their scenes, they do, they bring a level of comedy to it that's in the performance is slightly above and beyond what's in the script mm. it's not on the page I can't really see Pennant Roberts I don't know maybe you know, having the time to think about subtleties like that um, when he's got so much else to marshal so it really looks like it's stuff that must have been worked out by Tom and Louise and if they weren't getting on how on earth did they manage to <laughs> coordinate mm. so well or maybe I don't know what was it did they? Did he not talk to her because he missed 
Elizabeth Sladen and didn't like the character leader, or did, or has that been exaggerated? Well, did they talk as actors, as professionals, and get the job done, but not socialise? Well, we were a few episodes into, well, we are a few stories into. Well, it's a year, isn't it? Into it, yes. I mean, because we've had a, we had a couple of tail end of Hinchcliffe stuff with her, haven't we already? Mm. And we've had robots and talents. Mm. I mean, was was there a period when the things were worse? Did they improve? Did they con- deteriorate further? Do, does anyone know? Oh. No, nobody knows. No, nobody knows. <laughs> I just good point about Tom Baker leaping around in the in the chess playing scene, but I just thought as a fellow actor, it must be so hard to try and keep up with him and yeah. stick to the script, and there must be so much ad libbing going on. Maybe that maybe that was part of the tension. I'm not I'm not too sure. Well, that's another funny thing. I'm not going to ask anyone to check what all of these stories are written or recorded in, but I mean the um, the top and tailing K nine K nine comedy console room scenes. This mm. is kind of the way they use K nine forevermore now, isn't it? They give them something funny to do in the at the beginning, mm. and that just I do seems like the very. I do like the walkies gag. Um, yes, <laughs> the fact he says the W A L K. Third, as in mm. horror fan rock is visible enemy. This. Yes, and then they split them up because obviously this and Invisible Enemy are, are very much laser focusing corridors stories. Mm. So they put how, the image how? of I mean, Fendal in the middle. Had he already written this and he had to rewrite it to put K9 in, or did he write this in a hurry once they, having decided they were going to keep K9 and they pushed back stories that were already written that didn't have K9 in? Because that seems mental. You don't know, do you? I've got all the questions and none of the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think they knew. Well, Shannon Sullivan says um, Bob Holmes was, A, he wrote it to deliberately keep Tom and Louise apart for large oh, right. chunks of it. Crikey. Right. Because, because of the, hmm. yeah, supposedly because of their difficulties okay. working together. And B, he started it in early in the year, as, like as soon as he was signed up with Graham Williams and said he'd stay on, he agreed that he would do, they started planning this. And it originally started as a, as a satire on colonialism, so probably even more like Carnival of Monsters. Right. Before he started getting bogged down in his trouble with the tax man, and then decided that was where he was going to vent his vent his spleen more. And then, but he was he would have been as script editor, obviously, au fait with the discussions about canine staying on. And I think they must have decided that. I don't know. I think they they pretty much they did. It's not it's not like it's not a case like Jamie where they decided pretty much on the spur of the moment and then had to as they you know as they were in production yeah i think the k9 they i think with k9 they wrote him in and then they then they thought this is a good idea let's keep him around and bob holes would obviously have been that much more aware of it than i guess boucher was because um k9 is not in fendal at all is he no, but the thing is, it's he gets left. He can in the he can for... fit in here because it's got lots of corridors, and you know you yes, really can't yeah. imagine what on earth he would do mm. tonally or practically <laughs> in Fendal. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. So, tangent. What is this actually about? Is it about tax? Is it about? Uh-huh. Is it a satire on capitalism? Is it a, is it a class war story? Is he te- is he trying to tell the masses to rise up? Bob is far too. I'm not going to say cynical. But he's not mm. an, on such an on-the-nose writer that he would ever write a story, even if he, even if he did believe that um, mm. in the revolution as wholeheartedly as Malcolm Hulk, he wouldn't ever be able to tell a story that on the nose. Terence Sticks twists it, of course, in his the, the old Tory in his novel. He adds <laughs> his own spin to it all. I seem to remember the bit. You know, he, he softens the doesn't doesn't soften the ending. Gather a Hade still gets chucked off a building, but I believe. Mm. And this is not me remembering it. This is me remembering some other commentator commenting on this. I believe Terence has the um, the faceless mass who chuck Gatherer Hay to his doom, not feeling quite as jubilant afterwards mm. as they thought they would, and all feeling a bit ashamed of themselves and shuffling off <laughs> in um, mm. some sort of self-loathing, which is right. Terence. Mm. Not I, I'm being unkind. Not Terence being an old Tory, but Terence thinking he shouldn't be quite that um, glib about yeah. mm. murder. Even if it was a baddie. Hmm. Baddie. But what is it about? Because I've also s- seen people over the years, some of the newer, more political, some of the more political hmm. members of the Who commenting world, writing this off as saying, well, so much of Bob being a progressive. He, I keep calling him Bob tonight. So much of Bob being a progressive. Here he is moaning about taxes. 
Come on, mm. Bob, pay your tax. You're supposed to call yourself a socialist. I don't know if you did call yourself a socialist. What, what are you mean about taxes for? Taxes for the good. But of course, that's just the starting point, isn't it? If you look, it's not the whole. I don't think it's the whole crux of the point of the story. I think that's just a bit of detail yeah. for the comedy. Yes, he mm. was feeling bitter about it because he just had <laughs> the big tax bill. Mm. That's not what it's all about. He didn't then write an entire story to try and tell the world that taxes are iniquitous and unjust. Mm. It's not a, a libertarian tract, this, is it? That's just a bit of fun. Well, well, isn't it like the the whole American Revolution thing? It's taxation without representation. I mean, f- mm. fundamentally, the, the, the people are getting taxed, but they don't have any say in how they're governed. And that's the iniquity of it. It's not so much the economic hardship, but it's that they're, they're subjugated by this corporation. Could be. That works. Yes, yeah. I like it. But according to, according to Hansard, no less, um, oh, right. <laughs> UK, <laughs> UK income tax, standard rate of income tax in 1977 was uh, 34%. Oh, can we go back there, please? Oh, no, hang on. Oh, that's 20 <laughs> odd now, isn't it? Standard. <laughs> standard rate was okay. 34. Yeah. Jeepers. Including national insurance. Oh, mind you, there was Uh, was practically no VAT there, was there? Anyway, I'm I'm, I'm probably misremembering that too. I can't find full. I'm not going to go into a deep dive into that now. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that the... Yeah, I know. I might come on to where I think the thing that makes this... But it's definitely... It's a satire on business and stuff. And I think Mm. it speaks very... I think it speaks remarkably strongly to... it's It's a satire on things that Bob Holmes wouldn't have been aware of at the time and when I was watching it I was thinking this is so much stuff that I've recent, recently become read, read up a bit about and become quite aware of put it that way about you know about the the economics of space travel and and the I know obviously Jamie Matheson also will touch on it but it's hmm. it's a lot heavier I feel it feel like it's a lot heavier handed there than it is here the whole the whole thing of you are you know, the, the idea of trying to make your life in a hostile environment and you're a captive of the, you know, and the idea of going to going to Mars and for, with Elon Musk is mm. just like setting up this. <laughs> yeah, and, and the taxation is just a means of them controlling the society and ensuring that, the, that they've effectively got a, a, a serfdom of workers that are, that are there. And well, I've become... Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, that's what I mean. The, the tax, it doesn't need to be. The, these workers, it, tax doesn't need to be the crux of the story. Hmm. These workers are subject. They could be slaves, or they hmm. could be just people who are paid very, very little. Hmm. The fact that they are apparently being paid a reasonable amount, but then getting most of that tax back out of them. They're not being paid that much, though, I mean, given that Condo... No, but that's, called, that's called the joke. Yeah. That he's paid very little, but most of what they get paid most of the little mm. I get paid is taking tax anyway yeah my point is what is the most important part is it the tax or is it the fact that they are essentially what's the word um for a form of indentured yeah service, well, it's, right it's, yeah. it's, it's like these places where, where they you, you know they insist that you buy your food in the company shop or whatever so yeah, mm. yeah. i've got a couple of, i mean towards the end there um, when the, the collector gets to voice these things a bit more boldly Oh, mm. boldly, no pun intended. <laughs> he, he says, grinding suppression of the masses is the only policy that pays dividends, he says, right. which mm. I, don't, I don't quote because I think that's Bob laying out his political manifesto, but that seems to be a clear... If there's anything at the bottom of this root of the story, I would have thought it was more likely mm. to be that. Grinding suppression of the masses. Now, mm. is Bob saying that tax is the vehicle by which we suppress the masses? I don't think he is. I think he's just saying suppression in itself is the thing that the story's mm. about. And it, for, for a bit of fun, for the mums and dads, he's <laughs> he's pretending to make it a tax allegory, but that isn't really mm. what it's about. I'm going to die on that hill, unless somebody mm. proves me wrong. Yeah, I and think the, I would agree... The only other quote I've written down, which kind of links, the doctor say, says this this is no better than the, the methods of the company are no better than um, intergalactic invaders just, you know, taking over planets by military force. And the collector says, mm. we have tried war, but the use of economic power is far more effective, he says. Right. So it's it's just a general story about um, capitalism, isn't it? Do they? But they don't use the word capitalism, unlike in um, the second mm. story we'll be looking at where they... <laughs> 
where the Doctor makes it very clear, and possibly slightly too loosely, that capitalism itself is this problem. Yeah, and I guess, I guess the, the background to this as well is that it's it's Britain under Labour, isn't it? So so it was it was going to be another year and a half before the Conservatives came in. So so I suppose the whole uh, and and that whole you know Thatcher era was was way off in the future so even the people even the british people's experience of conservatives in the 70s was the, you know of the heath variety it wasn't that kind of quite the same thing that, yeah. that people now associate with it right i grind the grinding suppression of the masses you think was still to come but yeah well i mean insofar as people remember the 80s being like that mm. Uh, mm. the 70s weren't like that i, I think this think. is why some people who take it too seriously, think that this story is confused politically. They see the um, anti-capitalist angle and think, well, this must be supposed to be a an anti-conservative story, but he's written it under, while there's a Labour government in charge and moaned about taxes, and they think that Bob is confused and can't... Hmm. They think that these two ideas must be contradictory and hmm. that he needs to choose one or the other, and I just... I think that's very silly. I, I just... I think it was a different era politically, probably. But I mean, I don't, I don't, re- don't remember it firsthand because I was only ten at the time. I mean, the, the taxes are the instrument of suppression, and and throughout it is it is the company. I don't, you know, don't forget it. Although we don't talk about capitalism, we very much yes. There's a lot of emphasis on the company runs well, the I mean, planet, yeah. and you it's, know, he doesn't feel the need to give it to make up a space age name for it. It's just the company, isn't? it? Yes, yeah. I and there's a lovely, lovely little bit of dialogue about you know where the doctor says. Who runs it? What's it for? <laughs> and and Bishop, you know, Bishop says it makes a profit. That's what it's for. Mm. But who? Get, and the doctor says, but who gets the profit? Where does it go? We've never thought to ask. Mm. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. If they didn't, if they did this now, and to really push the satire through, it wouldn't be the company wouldn't be a, a group, uh, you know, an alien race that is suppressing the humans. It would be, I don't know, probably an AI gone mad. It, the idea would mm. be that. The profits re- literally were meaningless; that they were just—it was just capitalism for its own sake. Mm-hmm. It would be a political system that had gone sent, become sentient, you know, which would hammer home the point about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I thought the first few, very first scene. I'm, I'm going to change the subject now. I thought it looked very season fifteen, right at the very beginning. You know, it looked cheap. It was a white mm-hmm. corridor, which looked worse than the sets of the play I was mm-hmm. in last week. It was you could see the wallpaper hanging off what was supposed to be this. Spacefish look, but it also looked. Um, it had that with the window high up on the wall, you know, with the f- mm. flat that was the face in it. it. Had that uh, sort of surrealist, abstract, dystopian future look that you got in uh, early twentieth century um, political theatre. Do you yes, know what I mean, yeah. when I say that? I mm. couldn't. Th- I've been trying to think all day of what I'm <laughs> what I'm getting well, at. Well, my, my my reference point was going to be more like um, a bit Brexian or something. More like Brazil, but um, oh, but yeah, that's, the, that's right. the other end. But then that's Terry. That's Terry Gilliam deliberately doing all of that sort of Dadaist. Dad, yeah, kind of, that'll um, do. All that sort of thing. Other, it was only really in that end. very first shot. They. Uh, it's almost like pennant because that's stuff's not as easy mm. to do as you. Think. so it's almost like he put a lot of effort into getting that first bit right a bit where Cordo because it's quite an important scene the first few, couple of scenes mm. really do set the stall of the entire thing mm. Cordo mm. getting news of his father's death from yes some faceless servant of the machine yeah. Yeah. it's funny she doesn't come back into it at any point no I think the cheap so way of doing it both in writing to... terms the first and and in direction terms they put a lot of work in those first couple of scenes so you really come up you, it really tells you everything you need to know about the story and then the next three and a half episodes are a bit more formulaic mm-hmm. i mean the first scene with the gatherer it's almost like a pitch you could always imagine bob having written that out in full just as a, as a pitch to graham williams saying this is what i wanted to be about because it sets the entire thing out doesn't it mm-hmm. it doesn't really add much it's, but it's very typically him he's got his world building and his mm-hmm. Hmm. As well as laying out his satirical stall. Yeah, there's so much thrown into that first that first dialogue. And it's it's touched with the old Bob Cratchits and Scrooge mm. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Good point. Because the wood, the bit about the wood and the mahogany table doesn't mm. really fit in with anything else we see later on. Mm. But you have that lovely mention of the prepar- that um, Cordo we saw. He heard about it in the preparation centre, and they right. even they even had a picture of a tree. <laughs> 
And, yes. um, and the fact that they call it the preparation centre, the school or whatever, is mm. just, yeah, you're being prepared for work. Which is quite a modern view, isn't it? Mm. Simon, I was wondering, were you a um, a Blake Seven fan in the seventies mm. and early eighties? Oh, I love that. I I can't get over how more and more our police are beginning to look like the security forces in Blake Seven, <laughs> with all that black and the and the and the balaclavas and everything. Mm. But yeah, um, Michael Keating is in yes. the Sunmakers, isn't he? Mm. So that's a nice connection. And, and Paul's dystopian corridors as well. There's plenty of those in Blake yeah. Seven as well. Mm. The thing I always get confused about with this, I, I realised, yeah. I knew Michael Keaton, Keating, sorry, yes. <laughs> I knew Michael Keating was in it. Yeah. And I keep thinking he's going to play Cordo, and I was staring at yes, Cordo yeah, exactly. Michael yeah. Keating. Because in my either. head, that yeah. he's the ideal, the villa is a bit Cordo-y, and he's the, the mm. ideal person. But yeah. of course, and then when I see him turn up as a hard-bitten, sardonic mm. revolutionary, I think, oh, he's a bit miscast. Yeah, I mean he's all right in it. Doesn't get to do much, does he? No, he, and then of course there's um, your man from Heartbeats playing the lead revolutionary. Oh yes, Mandrill. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, the Welsh actor William Simons that with typical Welsh mafia casting. Mm. <laughs> yes, and also he's very Blakeish or like. <laughs> he, well, yes, it appears to have Blake's cast-off costume. It's very mm. that, that must be something in the air as well. Mm. And his and yeah. his perm as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like Blake Seven only Garrett started. Thomas. Yeah, Blake Seven started. I was looking this up, and Blake Seven started just after Christmas. So right. just a, just right at the start of 1978. So, I mean, Pennant Roberts directed the second episode. Because right. okay. I was thinking, you know, did he? But then Villa's in the first. I was having this discussion. Yeah, yeah, um, he's definitely the beginning, isn't he? It's Paul Derrick. Yeah, Villa, Villa's in the first one, so he wouldn't have been in for casting that particularly. Which is funny yeah, that he crops yeah. up. Well, I, I guess it depends how far ahead of transmission it was recorded. I mean, because I suppose he could have come mm. across him in the one that he directed second and then cast him in this if if it was recorded far enough in the future. Uh, oh, uh, so ahead of time, if you see what I mean. Mm. But he might not have done. They might, they might just have known each other. Was Pennant Roberts the one who was famous for trying to get more women into the stories? He'd look at these scripts and think, Bloody hell, I've got another Doctor Who script with no women in it. I'll change this, this, and this character. To, to yes. And, you know, he's got a couple in there. And you, I'm yes, just thinking, well, I've as women. It's still not enough. <laughs> no. <laughs> but did he save it from being a complete sausage fest? Mm. I think so. You're right. Yes, yeah. Because Marn, he changed Marn into a woman. Mm. And I think he got rid of a male, one of the rebels, in order to bulk up Veet's yeah. right. part. Yeah, I, so I don't argue know about I, whether that was a good idea or not. I'm probably, rem- I'm probably remembering having read that before, but yeah. it seems mm. oh suspicious of it, even if I hadn't read it. Mm. Silly, isn't it? What? 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 Are, I mean, Bob, come on, Bob. You're supposed to be progressive, man. <laughs> Something about taxes and not having women in the future. Mm. <laughs> and they, and they they do they talk about men quite a lot, don't they? I can't remember what, the, what, what precisely what he says, but you know. They, they're addressing the rebels and they're talk, talk, saying men or chaps or something. That, that was a, a sort of fairly male collective. Mm. Talking about the characters. Yeah. I mean, I like this. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. Mm. But um, it's not top tier Rob, Bob Holmes because the characters who aren't funny are fairly by numbers, I think, aren't they? Yeah. I, I, I think whatever is, you know, the, most of the rebels are pretty dreary. Mm. Yes, he doesn't seem very interested in them, which has the unfortunate, well, unfortunate, has a peculiar effect of making you more interested in the baddies. You sort of almost end up rooting for the Gavner Collector because they're fun to watch. And but I mean, it's not entirely accidental because, of course, they are antagonists, aren't they? For quite a lot Mm. of the story, Ursatz Blake and Pretend Villa Mm. and Woman Woman (laughs) are all. Um, cause more trouble for the Doctor and Leela than the people upstairs. And mm, I, I was yeah. trying to work out if there's any if that means anything. I don't know because it's interesting. If this was written by Terence Dix, I'd assume he was that that Terence Dix would have been writing a satire on the sort of on revolutionaries, the sort of yeah. people who want mm. to change the system but just skulk down in the shadows and don't actually do anything. Yeah, that's right. They, they, they can't be asked, can they? they I think, start I think, until the Doctor. But that doesn't yeah. seem very Bob to me. Mm. <laughs> but he wrote it, so. But he definitely because he, he makes it's, it's the because I, I enjoy 
Cordo and Bishop are the, are the two the two that are quite fun to yes yeah they've got some stuff to work with and he yeah. does the whole thing he does make it it's the it's the little guys it's the down the downtrodden mm. ones rather than the self styled half bitten revolutionary sort of actually the ones who sort of uh, stand up in the end I think on the sort of attack in terms of the production and the, the look of it and the the way people are directed I was reminded how anti Bob people will often say things like, well, you see, he's not that good. You see, they, they say things like this, right? They say, Caves of Androzani isn't that good. It was only Graham Harper that made that good. If you look at the mm. script on its own, you see, it's no better than The Power of Kroll. It's just like The Power of Kroll. And, in, and ditto, <laughs> if you had a decent director behind The Power of Kroll, then everyone would th- be thinking, that was a classic, you see, they say. Mm. And with that in mind, which is mostly nonsense, but on the yes. other hand, on the other hand, there's a kernel of truth in it, which is that... Mm. Of course, that's not literally true, but it's a kernel of truth because it's, he often writes about the same things and depending on how much effort he puts into it, sometimes they rise. Sometimes his, his usual soup of ideas, gum runners and smooth-talking, alliterative villains, sometimes right, become something special. I was thinking, I mean, is Gatherer Hayde just... Uh, who's John Normington in Caves of Androzani? Yeah. If, you know, if, if it was... I like the bloke playing Gatherer Hayde. I think it's very... Fruity, yes. Very funny, very fruity, very watchable, and I can understand why he did it that way. But of course, a lot of that is in the script. But how different is that from what's from um, what's his name? Your man Morgus. in Morgus. Morgus. I mean, I, 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 I noted that because the paranoid behaviour of Hade is very like Morgus. You know, this sort of thing of there's something going on here. I don't trust the Doctor. Hmm. He's doing, you know, he's there's something that I don't understand. You know, and and. Both yes, both characters. I mean, there the is same thing. there is a difference in the writing. Of course, this is a comedy, yeah. and Kevin Zandrani isn't. But mm-hmm. yeah. I reckon the difference between the performances is a bit much bigger than the difference between the characters. And I think if you if you brought down the performance of Gather Hayde and Gather Hayde is played quite fruitily, and John Normington mm. famously underplays yeah. a Morgus in a way uh, that most people, most other actors wouldn't have done. Mm. So it's if you if you squint and look between the cracks, you you can see. Mm. What am I trying to say? That you can see that Bob Bobbins always did exactly the same thing every single time. What I had. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know what I mean. I'm just looking for connections. Yeah, I do. I do like how the gatherer. Yeah, as you say, his his own sort of yeah, his own scheming is his downfall. Like the, if he hadn't, if he didn't have the have the bright idea of releasing the doctor, then the whole thing would. Yeah, yeah, and I know I'm a great fan of these kind of um, yeah, it's one, of, yeah, one of my favourite little subgenres of Doctor Who is the, you know, the Doctor lands and starts a revolution overnight. Yes, kind of indeed. Well, yes, or Happiness Patrol as well, isn't it, in its own way? Yes, um, yeah, but it's got to be. It's got to. <laughs> on the other hand, it's also the Space Museum, which is <laughs> maybe best not go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's Carnival of Monsters for that matter, isn't it? In the yes, midst of them, yes. yes. No, it is. It is one of my favourite types of Doctor Who. Mm. But it's um, sort of mm. underrated because by the sort of people who think that Doctor Who always has to be very realistic. Yeah, mm. I mean, my my only complaint about this story really is that somehow it never really feels like anyone is in any peril. I mean, aside from Gatherer Hayde is thrown off a building, so he, he, mm. he definitely doesn't come out of it very well. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I never really feel like like Leela's going to get steamed. It never really feels mm, like really? the Doctor is going to get. Well, sure, I mean, surely not. Unlike every other week. Well, the thing <laughs> is, the the thing is, it it is the most lacklustre, sauntering kind of escape I've seen in Doctor Who history. That bit around the cliffhanger, you know, in three into four. I mean, they couldn't have they couldn't have been slower about extricating her from there if they tried, and they and they. You know, still oh, they seem to have plenty of time despite that. Mm. Is it on film that bit? It is rather unfortunate that so much, some of the action scenes are on film, and no, know, I because, don't think it is because the editing is so slack. Like mm. the, the buggy, they fail, yes, they fail even to make the most of. Uh, yeah. I, I think we could have lost one, two of the rebels. I don't see why they all had to survive. Mm. Have been, I think yeah. Mandrill, Mandrill should have. Yeah, that's true. No one, no, no one gets no, no yeah. one actually. They all make it through to the end. Just hmm. without wishing to flog a dead horse too much, but returns return my Kazo and Zani thing. I think Mandrel. I was getting um, can't think of any names tonight. The the lead gun runner in. Um, I mean, you know, uh, just talking about how swapping Stops. an actor out. Stop. Yeah, if if you replaced hmm. the bloke from the nice bloke from Heartbeat with hmm. with Stotts, 
then most again, way, most way, much, yeah. Yeah. a much harder, mm. and it could have been felt much more dangerous. Mm. I, but though, having said that, those scenes underground do feel they're not played for laughs. They are. Mm. They, it is all quite hard, isn't it? Even if it's not particularly interesting, yeah. it is at least mm. a distinctly different tone. Yeah. I quite like the film camera work. I think yeah. it's got something to it. Oh yeah, some good, some good stuff. But of course, I can't take the, the little buggy. At the episode two into three, because I thought you were going to have a go at the episode two into three cliffhanger, which of course none of us can take seriously since Austin Powers came yeah. along with the buggy, the very <laughs> slowly approaching oh, buggy. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there is that, but I mean, I, 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 I when I watched it in the nineties, I was kind of more upset by that. This time, I kind of I, I let that pass. I mean, I, I, mean, I know, I know what you're saying, Simon, about it, about it feeling like a a shopping center or or a, or a leisure center or something but i mean it does have a corridor that feels like it's actually about a quarter of a mile long rather than a classic doctor who corridor where you can't see either end of it and they're trying to run very slowly along it mm, so it's true it, it has that going for it i mean they don't actually sadly attempt to run up the corridor probably because they'd have got knackered about halfway along but they, 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 again there's quite a lot of sauntering in 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 that um cliffhanger too but but yeah i mean i i for me, I quite liked the location filming because it just gave it a sense of perspective that you don't typically get in yeah. 1970s Doctor Who. Even, but but but, I, but it, and then it feels also a bit like those early stories in the RTD era when they're going around that stadium in Cardiff infinite number of times. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's got that kind of vibe to it. It just needed maybe to be either a bit more grimy or a bit more impressive. It's it's sort of it's neither dirty enough or impressive enough it's sort of it's just a bit grey and concrete isn't it is, is, is where it falls down well there was what Paul was talking about the editing there was one very careful bit of editing and that was where Leela was climbing down that ladder into the undercity and had to be very right. careful to cut away very quickly right oh god yes <laughs> Yeah, they do. They do appear to show Gordon. They come back and they don't play. It. It's not played for laughs, but he does appear to be staring straight up the ladder afterwards. <laughs> I was thinking, how oh, good they cut away, and then they cut back, and you think, oh. <laughs> but you're 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 right as ever, Richard. It's it it doesn't look an obviously oppressive sort of society where you know people are being tranquilized and their their thought process are being suppressed. I mean, wouldn't that stop them working more efficiently? That, right. that seemed a bit. That mm. seemed a bit odd, and that very good introduction to Cordo working a twenty-one hour day yeah. just to scrape mm. enough money together for his dad's funeral, and yeah. then getting royally ripped off because the the price has gone up or the taxation mm. rate's gone so, up. But that aside, people working and being taxed to death almost. It, there doesn't seem to be an end purpose to it all. Just as Paul's touched mm. on at length. Mm. And, and there are times, definitely, with with the rebels where they just feel like they're a bit a bit improv. Mm. I, I I don't know if they you know if they were underwritten or something. They just have, they're trying to big their parts of or something. But it doesn't. Yes, it, they were they were underwritten. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say it's originally set on colonialism before you thought the tax thing? Because of course that that would lead Apparently into the idea so. that it's essentially a form of slavery. Mm. But mm. Um, that would have been a bit too on the nose if you'd gone mm. gone down that route. Whereas it's, um, you know, there's a certain absurd, absurdist fun to the idea that <laughs> when he points out he's only got three hours left a day to sleep. Mm. Well, you, you know, why Get waste a paper those? Well, you've got three <laughs> hours left per day. You can work them. Well, yeah. And and the logical absurdism keeps going. Mm. Having to work them, you can take such and such capsules, but the, I can't afford them. Well, you can work harder to afford the capsules to allow you to not sleep and work harder. Yes, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll just explain no. the joke, but you know what I mean. This is um, <laughs> that is a classic form yeah. of satire. Well, I did think there's employing. a there's a link to sleep no more here, possibly. Yeah. With, uh, but without any eye bogey monsters, capsules. what a shame! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how do we feel about the the villain being essentially an accountant? <laughs> it's confirmed all of my prejudices. Mm, yeah, I think it was very good when he goes down to a little green blob and falls into yeah. a commo- commode. I, I like green blobs, but then I like, I'm the only person who likes the rutan, the rutons. Oh, <laughs> yeah. me too, Paul. Hey, <laughs> that was some of it was some of it was quite high concept. So the idea of 
the earth being depleted and the mm-hmm. population needing to get away. And then these mm. kindly aliens come along and say, oh, we can help you colonize Mars. Mm. And then that got exhausted. And, and then you, you got this fantastic idea of Pluto being made habitable. And it's got six artificial suns around it. I mean, that's that's really good. That's really good science fiction. It is. I don't want to be too prosaic, but I mean, there's a lot of back. I could watch some stories set in that part of Earth's history. He skipped over thousands and thousands of years of stuff there. Yes, yeah. It's the sort of thing that can, you know, causing immense problems for people who write histories of Doctor Who. (laughs) How you fit this in? But I'm. It's a real high point in his world building because it's his. It's his sort of one-liner, throwaway line world building stuff. But mm. also, it makes perfect sense on a science fiction level. Yes, wonderful, isn't it? Back when I, the first time I ever tried to write a Doctor Who story, when I submitted, I uh, tried to write a new adventure in the early night, about 1991. It was a sort of prequel to this because I didn't have any ideas. <laughs> and I wrote a very, very, very lame satire on privatisation. And I brought the Usurians in because I thought they were due a visit. Mm. And I, I don't think anyone's ever gone back to them in any medium. They must be about mm. the only thing left that nobody's... Please write in, phone in if I'm wrong. If Tell me Big Finish had done them, that'd be embarrassing. But I don't, <laughs> I don't think anyone has. Mm. And they still never bring the, back the Rutans either. I would bring them both back if I was writing for the next series and have them revealed to be cousins from neighbouring planets, because that's how it works, mm. isn't it, if they look vaguely similar. Mm. That's what I would have. The Usurians. That's one of those... Um, What's the word? Yes. Dickensian sort of Doctor Who villains. Uh, mm. Species it's, names, it's, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's, 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 would you say it's a pond? No, no, no. no. But I mean, it, it basically... determinism. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've called ourselves Usurians. <laughs> and so now we have to run the universe taxing people to death. Yes. With punitive rates of interest. There's no other way. I checked up on the history of usury. usury right. And I gather in, in classical times, any form of lending with interest was called usury. Mm-hmm. Usury. And then it became just punitive rates of interest. Uh, I don't know if that's at all relevant. Hmm. I assume... That's enough of one of your mate Bob's jokes, I think, isn't it? Yeah, well, yes, I guess. <laughs> that's all it is, really. I mean, the, the only other thing I think we haven't really... I mean, we, 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 we brushed over it, but we've, we've talked about Tom Baker being kind of a bit all over the place at times. But, I mean, you know, I mean he, he, he carries the story... You know, but but it is a, one of his scattier performances. We talked about or the, the supporting actors. We talked a bit about Louise Jameson, you know, and did did she have a strange relationship? We haven't really talked mm. about about the role of Leela in this, though. I mean, she considering that I suppose that there aren't very many women in this. She does she does have um, a fairly strong story. Mm. I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. don't know what. Uh... I think... It's a strong, it's a strong Leela and a strong K nine story. I think it's just a bit disappointing. She gets into action and and rescues people, everything, and then she ends up needing rescuing by the doctor. Yes, true. Well, you know, <laughs> there's a hierarchy of these things, isn't there? <laughs> and he has that he has that lovely line where um, Leela gets zapped by a force field in the vault, and he says, "You girls, you never listen to me." Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's quite nice. Which was a nice sort of. Girl, probably get yeah. frowned upon nowadays but that was a nice line that sounds like a, not so much an ad lib but would Bob Holmes have written you girls it sounds like Tom Baker yeah mm. we thought that yeah that's what he called them didn't he yeah I do like that um, yeah I, I like the bit with the um, yeah by by this point we've had the setup of yeah the, the template of the Doctor having to explain things to Leela that um, are outside of her experience as a member of the Sever team and the fact that she doesn't know what taxes are mm. is quite a good riff on that. Yeah. I think it's quite a nice... And, you know, she, she was... You know, it's funny, considering my general opinion is Leela's one of the best written and most distinctive companions mm-hmm. of the classic series. You know, and, and we've you know, we've discussed before that it feels that they sort of let it off the, off the leash a bit and, you know, you've just got... You've got a good... You know, whatever the tension's behind the scenes, you know, you have this very good, good sort of, you know, the Eliza Dude little relationship on the screen. And yet, of course, you know, she was apparently so unhappy with what she was being given, that this is around the time and this was the story, they talked about her, she was going to be killed off at the end, didn't they? Briefly, they toyed with the idea. Good Lord about. 
before sticking around with her. I assume they wouldn't have steamed her. (laughs) (laughs) I I presume it would have been at the climax of the story, so it would have to have been in some other way, unless they kept her in. But but it was definitely, it was toyed, it was toyed Mm -hmm. with for a little while, and then they obviously decided to keep her sticking around for another two two stories. Mm. It's a a shame when you look at the success of the second Doctor. Sorry, Mm. Charles. You look at the success the second Doctor had with Jamie. Mm. I mean, Leela's very... If they could have got the chemistry right and mm. the actress had been happier with the scripts, they they could have had just as memorable a relationship. Mm. I mean, there's the, there's the odd classic story where they really gel together, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson and the, the characters. But um, she always reminds me of Jamie a little bit. What is it Louise says? Did she say that it was after Bob Holmes left, Bob Holmes left that the writing deteriorated and she thought they didn't know what to do with the character or if I just invented that? Or was it purely about the Tom Baker thing that made her want to leave? I wouldn't have thought the Tom Baker thing in in, on, in itself. No, I think it was the writing, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm, I think so. Right. But, you know, you'd have to watch them in order, production order, then, to yeah. see if... There's not, yeah, there's not much right. coming after this, is there, though? There would have been Image of the Fendal, Underworld... I mean, I, I can imagine you, you could get, anyone could get brassed off with... Underworld and the Invasion mm. of Time. But don't yeah. we need to, ru- but I don't need to rush towards then. Underworld, but I've got a feeling it is now the only remaining story that I've not watched Brackets as an adult. Right. Mm. I well. saw it at the time, and it's the only one I've never gone back to. <laughs> well, same, same here, Paul. Well, I tell you, I tell you what, f- find something that's set underground in the uh, new series, <laughs> and, and we can... Um, or, or something with terrible special effects. Yeah, too much CSI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. And we can pair them together. Yeah. Oh, great. That should or be on the, mm, that should be on the final episode of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because no one will ever listen to it again. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, here's a clip from my other podcast. Emily! So it is the end, but the moment has been prepared for. But for now, yeah, it's bye from me. Nicola, so she was the new co-host all along. You were expecting someone else? And welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working, our podcast all about work, why we work, how we work, and what makes a great job. We're back with an episode all about making changes and moving on. And welcome to our new co-host, Nicola, who's a colleague and a friend of both Emily and me. Thank you, Richard. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast previously, and I'm very excited to be here. Brilliant. So, I guess talking to our listeners, I mean, you may have been wondering what's happened to the podcast. I mean, I know I have. It's probably about June since we put out a, a regular episode, and I think we put something out in August briefly just to, to try and explain what was going on. But if you wondered if it was ever coming back, in fairness, I wondered that too. Firstly, I guess I'd like to say big thanks to Emily, who helped to devise the format mm-hmm. in the first place, and she's been a big part of the success so far. But quite understandably, Emily decided that she's got other priorities in her life right now and so has moved on. But she, she didn't want the podcast to come to an end. And after some careful thought, I asked Nicola if she'd like to pick up the mantle. Yeah, which I was both surprised and honoured by. I guess one of the reasons I thought of you, Nicola, was because I thought you've got a sense of fun, which I thought you would bring along to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, good insight, too. So I thought, you know, perfect combo. I worked as a receptionist at a chicken farm once and it was a 
a very bizarre place. <laughs> Everyone finds that very amusing. It was, it's a lovely, it was a lovely setting out in the country and all yeah. things like that. But I worked on reception and there were aspects of the, the job, you know, it was, it was a very administrative role. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it was the smell. Certainly the chicken farms that I've ever come across, yeah. you, you, you smell them before you see them. I did, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in in certain areas, it is quite pungent. We'll start again to post material on our webpage if hurt not. Do- Sorry, I can't even speak it. Yeah, no, it's not. I got it. I got it right, and then I lost confidence. 